everyone. Welcome to Biotech Podcast. My name is Judy and I'm studying chemical engineering at University of Toronto. I'm also joined by my partner Malak, who's studying system design engineering at University of Waterloo. So today we're honored to invite Dr. Bashara Saab as our guest speaker for the podcast. Dr. Saab is the CEO and Chief Scientist of the Mobile Interactive, a digital therapeutic and performance enhancement company empowering better living and faster healing. We're excited to have him on board with us today to tell us a bit about the technology behind this great invention. Dr. Bachara Saab, thank you so much for joining us today. Would you like to give us just a quick introduction about yourself? Uh, yes, uh, my pleasure. I'm very happy to be here. Um, so I guess my, my career starts in school. I classically trained as a chemist, actually. That's what I did my undergrad in at UBC, as well as at um, the University of Glasgow, where I did a master's in um, medicinal uh, chemistry, but they have like a little bit of a weird system there. So masters are sort of kind of mixed in with the undergrads. And then I did my PhD at Mount Sinai Hospital. I did a postdoc at the Brain Research Institute in Zurich, and then wound up opening my own lab at the psychiatry hospital in Zurich. And that um, my research there focused on understanding how the neural circuits um, underlying our motivation to explore, so kind of like the, the, the basis of curiosity, how that's healthy for the brain in terms of the capacity to learn and, and, and also like how we are doing just emotionally. And then um, I was really, really interested in translating that research uh, into something that we can use with humans and uh, in, the, in, in terms of medicine. And a friend of mine wanted to start a company and then things kind of got rolling and, and here we are, I wound up quitting my academic job and then focusing full-time on mobile interactive. Yeah. Wow, yeah, that sounds definitely like a quite a journey. Uh, so I guess having like a very in-depth chemistry background, do you feel like that aids both of your like, you know, research journey in psychiatry or as well as, you know, in the process of founding mobile, does that give you a different perspective per se? It, it's interesting. Um, when you understand some details about you know the world around you, um, you kind of see everything differently, right? It's very very common that people kind of go through a little bit of a transition, particularly I think in the first couple of years of university, if you're taking courses like chemistry and biology, because they open up this this world to you. You start to see plants in terms of their cells and how they communicate, and you you you, you realize that everything's made up of these molecules, and you kind of understand, oh, these these are the forces that keep things separate. And so you see the whole world differently after you've obtained this this level of understanding of the the universe, of course. Um, but I think in terms of the the company, the big difference between how the scientists see things and how the you know the rest of the team sees things is that particularly the neuroscientists at Mobile Interactive is, you know, we, we see all this new knowledge that's coming out and we have the capacity to kind of absorb it and understand it um, on a meaningful full level. And then it's, it's not that difficult to see how we can use that in, in, in medicine. So I think that, that, that is rather unique. It's, I think it's a lot harder to under for for like a science for a non-science person to wrap their head around how the novel science is going to impact people's people's health. Um, so that that helps, but people can semantically understand it. They can appreciate that new knowledge leads to new discovery, leads to better medicine. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like, I guess going from academic to, you know, transitioning to startup entrepreneurship is a true way of translating your research into something that's very tangible. And also, you know, you can communicate this to the general public and actually have a uh, very clear benefits to the uh, society. So I guess now that we're on the topic of mobile, we can get into more detail into its products. So we know your one of your main products is called MDTEX, which is an award-winning and clinically validated app, which is essentially a data and science-backed mindfulness mediation app that delivers the uh, performance enhancement and resilience training. So could you tell us how is MDTEX different from the other meditation app that's on the market as, for example, Headspace or Calm? Uh, absolutely. And obviously, I've given these distinctions a number of times when speaking with clients and investors for the company. <coughs> Excuse me. There are there are four, I think, important aspects that sets OmDTX apart from your typical meditation app that's on the store. And there are a lot of you know meditation apps on the, on, on the stores now. Um, two of these differences emerge from our deep interest in science and technology. So we, I think, maybe. You know, you're aware that OmDTX was the first meditation app that beat placebo and randomized controlled trials. And what that means is that it's, I think it's the only one that's done that actually. It's the only one that's been able to demonstrate in a scientifically validated way that we could outperform the expectation effect or the placebo effect, as it's very commonly known. And that's, that's pretty important because now we know that the benefits that come from the product result directly from the content and that we're delivering and how we deliver it, as opposed to the fact that people just expect that engaging with a product like this is supposed to make them better. Um, and that, that's really important because, you know, we don't know how much that generalizes. Headspace, for example, has been shown to not be able to outperform placebo in terms of improving people's well-being and improving their, their cognitive uh, capacities. So, you know, so, so what, what's different about Headspace and, and OmniTX? We don't necessarily really know what makes one of them more, more effective than the other, but the fact that we do know that this one is effective, OmniTX can be placebo, sets us apart, not so much in terms of the consumer, because I think the general consumer sort of generalizes this stuff and, and maybe we'll never even know, but it, it does make a big difference for when we make a play inside of healthcare, which is what we're doing at Mobile Interactive. So that, that clinical efficacy is, is, is one big difference. A, a second thing is the capacity for us to measure. We have a, a lot of emphasis inside of the product on doing self-assessments as well as objective assessments through computer vision and AI. And that large emphasis on self-assessment we think is rather therapeutic. So just the fact that you take time to, to, to think about how you're doing before and after you engage with content we believe that has a good chance of making the content more effective itself. That's a hypothesis that we have not scientifically tested yet, but has a lot of there's a lot of evidence that suggests that this is this is this is likely one of the reasons why we have a very effective product. Um, but in addition, when we can measure objectively, uh, particularly because we can do this without a wearable, or right? so it's really something that works at scale. As long as you have a phone, as long as you can use the app, you can use the measurement tools. Um, then, then we're really able to, to deliver something which is which which is quite distinct. Um, so that those two things are very science related, and how we involve deep tech, the clinical validation, and the ability to objectively quantify. A third difference is how 
OMDTX is able to then personalize to each individual and does that based upon the experiences that that person has had with the product and the objective data that we obtain on how the product and different content has affected that individual. So that level of personalization um, you know, has, has, has greater potential inside of a product like OMDTX than it does inside of your typical meditation app. Um, and then the, the fourth thing that I would say that sets us apart is that OMDTX really isn't just a meditation app. It, it started with delivering mindfulness type meditation. Then we branched out to other forms of meditation. Now we have music therapy, but we are also uh, about to start releasing self-hypnosis tools and getting into the cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, other forms, binaural beats, anything that we can deliver through a smartphone that can benefit people, we want to do. Um, and that's kind of the motivation for changing. The, the product's name has changed over time as it's evolved. And now it's just OMDTX because it's we really don't want to be thought of as a meditation app, even though that is still the majority of what we offer at present. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I think your second point there is very interesting. I've actually used the app a fair bit. And I think in terms of the ability to objectively measure and quantify, I think it's really interesting because, for example, with things like Headspace, um, you know, you could be doing a guided meditation, but at the end, are you, did it actually have an impact on you? You could, you're right, like placebo does play a lot in there. Whereas when I've used the snapshot feature um, on the OMDTX app, I've been able to kind of get the computer generated stress levels. Mm -hmm. So I'm mm -hmm. able to realize, oh, I think I, that, that actually did get better. Or, um, you know, when I'm doing my self-reflections of what my stress levels are, and then I'm looking at the computer generated one allows me to reflect, like, maybe, maybe I wasn't completely honest. Maybe I need to reflect more. Maybe I, like, was I actually stressed? Do you know what I mean? So I think, I think the ability to measure there completely sets you apart from other people. Um, like for example, headspace or calm and now, sorry, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to, to comment that you, you've picked up on something which is potentially really medically or psychologically relevant because the, the ability to sense how you're doing is very protective, particularly in the case of anxiety disorders. It's very often in anxiety disorder, people have a panic attack kind of because they're misinterpreting what their body is telling them and they get right. into this uncontrollable positive feedback loop where they're like, oh, I'm panicking. And that makes their body kind of panic. And then they're getting the signals. Um, and it could be triggered by something, by, by a very positive event in their life. And then they have this negative experience. And it's really just due to, um, you know, a, a mismatch in how they're interpreting signals. And when you're able to more accurately identify your, your level of stress, um, you actually start to become protected against these things. And it's also, you know, common for people, particularly later in life, to, to, to habitualize to the stress of the experience. And you can find people that don't right. think they're stressed, but they're actually very stressed. It's just that they're stressed all the time. So they're used to it. And then they get inside of a product like OmDTX and they do these selfie scans and they're like, why is this thing saying that I'm a 95% stressed all the time? It's always putting me up at the top, but I feel normal. And that's because for them, normal is 95% stressed. And that's something you can't really identify unless you have this objective tool that can come in and then actually tell you how. how, how yeah, like a completely accessible way for you to figure that out without, you know, having to pay the hefty bill to go see, for example, a psychologist or something like that. So completely accessible as well. 
Um, mm -hmm. And now that we've yeah. kind of touched on the OmniTX app, I've you know used it a bit, so I kind of understand that there's a few sections like snapshot. Um, but do you think you could give our listeners just a quick overview of the different um, sections of the application and what scenarios they'd be used best in? Yeah, the the product has a lot of depth, um, and because of that, it can be actually a little bit tough for people to use. I think it can be be daunting for people who, particularly if they're not tech savvy or you know super explorative. Um, you come in, what do I do? And then you dis disengage. That's that's a common thing, and we know that. Um, but it hasn't been much of a barrier for us because we've really designed this product for the you know, medical context where patients are supported in their use of the product and and they have a little bit of a different experience and they have these courses they go through so that 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 choice is removed. Um, but all these different features, I mean, um, you know, you everything from a self guided timer to various different types of meditation, multiple different guides, multiple languages. Um, we have these personalization features where you can go in and find content specifically for you in the here and now. There's the, you know, the journal or progress or data repo where you're trying to figure out what best to call it. It allows you to look over your data. And then, of course, we have this gamification. So there's badges. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of, of crap in there, which, which, um, which has been our intention to build it all up. Now we're in kind of phase three of the product development which is to really improve the experience and make it easier for the average person to, to in a step-by-step -step way, learn all these different features. Um, so I think, you know, rather than break down all of them in detail, I just like to talk about um, journeys, which is one, one of the most popular things inside of the product, which are these step-by-step -step courses, which are either created for a specific group of people like cancer patients or children with traumatic brain injury, or first responders, for example, people who, you know, policemen or, or firefighters. So different types of, of people can get, get courses that are meant for them. Um, or the courses can serve a particular goal. For example, you want to build a habit or you want to be a more mindful leader and lead with, with more EQ. Um, then, you know, you can go through these step-by-step -step journeys and they remove all the choice, you know, associated with what are you going to do today? You just follow the courses and there's features and journaling and all kinds of things embedded within those courses themselves. So those, those courses often contain uh, even little interactive games and stuff like that you play that are only available inside certain journeys. These journeys are very, very popular inside of the, inside of the product. And they're almost like individual apps on their own, each journey. Um, and the other feature to, to really mention is something that we call the my moment, where you go in and you indicate what is your intent and how are you feeling? And then with that information, we have an algorithm that then picks out of the hundreds of, of sessions that we have available inside of the product, it picks just three that should resonate with you in the, in the moment. And algorithm works quite well, although not perfectly. And um, then you can, you can grab something right away, which makes you ready to uh, you know, so remove that choice again. And that's, that's a really popular feature uh, as well. Yeah, for sure. I think these features are also very accessible for the users. For example, like for the journey, you have like customized courses for different people. And um, for the mind moment, you can also have algorithms that easily sort of trim down the large amount of options available and then directly sort of like tailor the ones that are like the, the top three that are most, I guess, suited for them. So I guess going on the topic of accessibility. So we're just wondering, did mobile or your team ever consider, you know, introducing a different physical embodiment of this application? such as a, uh, a wearable component or do you think you know introducing a different form of this application will make it actually less accessible to a larger proportion of users um, from the very beginning 
and still today, we've been committed to scalable solutions. We, we have experimented a little bit with compatibility, compatibility sorry, of, of particular wearables, but it's really a form of product augmentation. It's, it's something that, that we do kind of on the side. We, limited resources in any organization. It's really about, you know, if we, if we combine with a wearable, it's, it's to augment the experience. It's, it's, it's sort of, you know, maybe as a way to increase sales because you, you, know, you can have all sorts of co-promotional opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, we, we, we think that the, the, phone, the phone is our interface with the, the computers of the world. Right? We have this internet, we have all these computers, the computer world, you know, that is, is it's, you know, as a universe, it's very powerful and we tap into it through, through the phone. And because there's so much power involved in computers and the internet, you know, everybody wants a phone because everybody wants a phone. Everybody carries a phone around because everybody has a phone. You know, it's, 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 it's sort of the best place to be interacting with, with, with people. Wearables tend to, you know, the novelty effect tends to wear off after six months, you have to charge them. There's all sorts of barriers um, that, that, that wearables actually introduce. So, so we try to ensure that 100% of what is necessary is done without a wearable, um, but a few wearables are compatible and we do have some stuff in the pipeline actually um, the, involving wearable integration. Any but sneak only... peeks you can give us or? Well, we have, we, we've signed a deal with the manufacturer of EEG headbands, for example, and um, we're looking at ways to really integrate that in, in, a, in a detailed way. Um, but it can't be something that the core value of the product depends on. It's really about this, you know, the second, second level of augmentation, um, because we know that, you know, you, we're not going to have, you know, billions of people using EEG headbands, right? It's just. Right. And, and likely more on a clinical level too, where it's like more specialized, right? So not like. Uh, a meditation potentially or... yes um, but even that isn't um, is, isn't fully known because even within medicine we want things to be to be scalable and, and really accessible so I think we don't know if if the use case of like an EEG headpan for us will be more on the medicine side or more on the you know just the revenue generating consumer side augmentation so so potentially yes but but not necessarily yeah, it sounds like there's a lot to discover there. I'm super excited to see kind of like where it heads from here. I think the introduction of a wearable is really interesting. I do think it makes it potentially less accessible, but could also lend itself to, you know, provide you more data or more um, kind of like properties that you need. Um, well, the great thing about a wearable is, is this continuous measurement, right? So right now, jump into OmniTX, you can do some measurements and you can do it so that's the max five, 10 times a day before right. it's like really like unrealistic two times a day is, is, is very manageable, but a wearable, you know, you can throw it on and get this continual, this continual data from it, uh, even when people are sleeping and stuff. So you're right from that perspective that can really open up some new possibilities for us. Um, but ultimately it's, you know, it's, it's a barrier for, for, for scalability. Absolutely. Um, I think if we if if we as a company were to start building any hardware, we wouldn't build a wearable. We would build a phone. Yeah. You know, and we would, you know, that way we can have control over the cameras and you know the chips that are inside it. We can optimize the the, the phone hardware. So maybe at some point, mobile interactive builds phones. But yeah. that's that's a long that's a long ways away. Yeah. On on the topic of continuous measurement, um, we were also curious about Mobio's uh, measure of stress feature. So um, from what I know on Snapshot, you take, you know, a colored image of your face and then 
um, really like what happens behind the scenes, I'm not totally sure about, right? So what does OmniTX do with this image and how do you measure the stress from it? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's pretty interesting and it's, it's, it's almost like magic in a way. Um, I didn't think it would be able to work. And I, I, I'm, I actually still am quite surprised that this technology even works. When I, when I used it, I certainly <laughs> felt like it was magic. But, um, uh, but it does work and we have the data to, 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 to demonstrate that. Um, there's actually two measures of stress in, in OMDTX. One is the self-assessment. So the simple stress slider that allows users to indicate what they feel the level of stress is on a scale from zero to max, right? whatever max might be. Um, and this simple measure is actually a benchmark measure. So we know that it significantly correlates with the principal components of well-being assessments obtained from psychological surveys. So it's got some sort of medical relevance. Um, and the simplicity of this stress slider is really the key because you can, you can do it very, very, very quickly um, and you're unlikely to screw it up. And so, you know, so you can do this multiple times a day and people frequently do this before and after the engaged meditation. So that self-assessment is, 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 is actually pretty important to augment the, the usefulness of the objective measure, this, this more high-tech measure. And it's not just a photo, it's actually this 30 second selfie video. And what it does is it tracks excitation of the autonomic nervous system. And so how, well, how was this done? Well, the, one of the most important biological manifestations of stress is activation of part of the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is the part of the nervous system which is supposed to be basically automatic, right? Or, or involuntary and done, done, done on its own. Um, although it's not completely involuntary, you can actually learn how to control it, right? So many deep sea divers and, you know, or what do they call the people that dive down deep and they hold their breath forever, they can control their heart rate you know, like basically instantaneously, right? And, and that heart rate is controlled um, mostly by the autonomic nervous system. So they can tap into this uh, in, in a very, very um, <clears throat> controlled way. And we all have the potential to do that. It's not like they have some crazy biology or something. Uh, but basically it was named autonomic nervous system because it's, you know, historically viewed as being this, this involuntary or automatic system. But it has, it has two parts. It has the parasympathetic system and the sympathetic system. And the, the activation of the sympathetic nervous system prepares the body and the mind, um, and depending on the individual and the setting, to either fight or flee. Right? We call it this fight or flight response. And when the sympathetic is activated strongly, we may find ourselves acting involuntarily. Like I said, you know, that's what autonomic nervous systems is, is, is about. So we could act violently or we can run away right, this fight or, or flee and, and sort of in a rather involuntary out of control sort of way. And these responses can be kind of more on the cerebral side. So we can act violently with what we say or through the decisions that we make when we're under stress, right? Not necessarily like physically fighting somebody. Um, and we can flee also by, you know, retracting into ourselves or in ignoring problems and failing to take action, right? On things. So stress can kind of uh, immobilize you or be a form of procrastination, um, uh, you know, can, can induce procrastination, right? Because you're, you're sort of freezing in terms of what you need to get done. So this, this, this manifestation of stress through activation of the sympathetic nervous system is something that we can actually pull this out. 
And we want to do this because chronic overactivation can actually lead to disease. We know that 90% of all diseases are either caused by or are worsened by stress. So it's, it's a really important thing to be able to, to measure. Um, but how does the 30 second selfie video of the face actually do that? Um, and the answer is, I think, pretty simple actually. Both components of the autonomic nervous system, parasympathetic and sympathetic, they, they control heart rate. So they innervate the sinoatrial node, but the time course of action, the, how quickly they're able to control heart rate um, is, is not the same. Uh, and that means that the nature of the change of heart rate over time, something that we call heart rate variability, can actually provide information on how much activation there is within these two components of the autonomic nervous system. And because of the slower nature of the sympathetic control of our heart rate, heart rate variability tends to be higher um, within a given heart rate range when we're, we are relaxed. So the more free flowing, then when you get stressed, it's kind of more rigid. That's the, that's the general within a given heart rate range, the, the, the general thing, but the relationship is actually a little bit more complicated. Um, but basically you can look at the frequency power within variability, which means um, you, know, you can take any wave pattern, um, symphony or you know, whatever, and you can break it down into the individual component, wave components. And when you do that, that's an assessment of the power. And that's, that's the type of algorithmic analysis that we can do on heart rate variability, control that for the heart rate range. And then that gives us some information about what, what is going on in the balance of the autonomic nervous system. Now, and all this you're able to detect from a 30 second video. Yeah, right. Okay. So, so, I, so I've explained to you the biology for how we, for why it's relevant and the biology for how these things interact and how we can get information out of heart rate and heart rate variability. But I, what I haven't explained is how do we actually get heart rate and heart rate variability right. out of a video, right? And, and it's actually, that's what's actually, you know, quite, quite, that's the easiest part to understand actually is that when your heart beats, your arteries dilate and contract in the same rhythm as your, of your heartbeat. And because your arteries dilate, then, you know, if you look at your skin, the proportion of skin under the, you know, under the surface, like that, that has an artery in it will get a little bit bigger. And because of that, you actually have a, like this rhythmic um, pattern of, of, of how, of color, like, like how red your face is essentially that corresponds to your heart rate. And what we've done is we've empirically identified six different wavelengths of light that, that give a really good signal there. And so what we have to do with the video is first we identify there's a face that triggers us to start recording. Then we track that face in order to remove motion artifacts and, 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 and you know, correct for, for any confounds that may be caused by people turning their faces, et cetera. Uh, we find regions of the face that are relatively uniform in color so we can get a good signal. And then we just start recording these six different wavelengths of light. And then we have a statistical algorithm that then pulls out heart rate and heart rate variability in a high frequency spectrum and a, and a low frequency spectrum. So then we know we have these three data points. Those three data points are then sent to a neural network that runs on a cloud. And that neural network is able to make sense of the information and then spit out a level of stress. And- That's fascinating. Have you found 30 seconds to kind of be the sweet spot for how long that video needs to be? 
Sweet spot, yes, because it's essentially the minimal amount of time. Um, you you know, like your heart, depending on you know, you know the individual and the setting, your heart might only be beating once per minute or less. Uh, not once per minute, once per second. So, you know, you need a certain number of heartbeats in order to calculate heart rate variability, right? Within, within those beats with any sort of accurateness. Um, and 30 seconds seems to be the, the lowest that we can go and still maintain a high level of accuracy. And, you know, being accurate is, is pretty, pretty darn important. And yeah, so the, the neural network that that does all this, that's kind of like the magic because we tested known algorithms for determining stress based upon the data that we're able to extract on heart rate. They don't perform nearly as well as the neural network. And so the neural network is, has discovered something about this relationship that we do not yet understand. Um, we can't design algorithms um, or statistical models that are able to perform as well as the neural network. Um, we actually don't even try anymore. We just let the neural network do its thing, right? Um, but but that's that's actually really fundamental. Is, is you know if we didn't have neural networks, this technology wouldn't be possible. This is this is truly dependent upon machine learning. Um, it's 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 a it's a proper use case of artificial intelligence. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. So I guess to clarify, by looking at the color change on face, are you essentially measuring like the facial blood flow as an indicator for the heart rate changing? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I guess another question I have is that like by measuring the heart change, uh, heart rate change variability. So essentially you're looking at, for example, if parasympathetic nervous system is having a greater influence on the heart rate versus sympathetic in that sense. Mm hmm Okay, so is there like any requirements for people to take the 30 seconds selfie? For example, say if one person just got back from the gym, then perhaps the uh, like physical exercise may actually introduce some confounding variables on the uh, on the heart rate set. For example, you know, like the local uh, chemical gradients on the blood vessels, like the uh, carbon dioxide and oxygen gradients may actually cause vasodilation or vasoconstriction that will also affect the uh, heart rate as well. So is there any measures that the, uh, the app has to sort of counter that? Or is there any, you know, like instructions on that front? Yeah, that, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, the heart rate itself is a very important uh, piece of information for the neural network. So if we just send it heart rate variability, we don't get accurate um, predictions of stress. So that, that heart rate itself is, 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 is really, really key. And that helps control for things like I uh, was just, you know, running or, or something like that. Um, in terms of other things that would um, affect the, 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 the dilation of, the, of arteries, the, um, the time courses are typically quite different. So in addition to picking out heart rate and heart rate variability, we actually record a lot of stuff. We get breath rate. We get uh, relative blood oxygen saturation. We record different pigments, and we don't use any of these data in, in any medical context, or even, you know, share it back with with the user because we still haven't done all the scientific experiments necessary to convince ourselves that this stuff is, you know, ready for that. Um, but we do still collect this information, and we we sh we see really good signals that that it's at least a crude, um, correct analysis. For example. Um, if we look aggregate across the whole product, we see that people's oxygen saturation goes up after they've done 
a meditation, particularly meditations that involve breathing exercises. Well, that makes sense, right? Because people are tend to breathe breathing more deeply and they're, you know, they're slowing down, but you know, the breathing is going up. And so you expect oxygen saturation to go up. We see that. Um, we also measure the breath rate. Um, that that information we can get out also from um, cycles within the, the blood. So the only way that we can get a confound from other things is if it would be in the same frequency spectrum as heart rate itself. That's not super uh, likely. That being said, there are other things which can control the balance of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, um, such as how tired you are. And we think there is, and we have some data to suggest that um, being ver very tired is also something that uh, can trigger a higher stress response. And so we're, we're hoping that we can start to tease this out over time. And we have, we're putting a lot of resources now into understanding people's emotion, at least in terms of valence and arousal, how good somebody feels and how strongly they feel it. And we, you know, so we think, and maybe in about a year or two, we'll have a really, really in-depth understanding of how somebody's doing from the same 30 second video. And through independent measures of what's going on in the face. Um, and I won't get into too many details, but we're trying, but we're going beyond just measurement of, 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 of color. And the, um, you know, we, we then should be able to then identify when these things go wrong because the neural network gets, gets it wrong one out of every five or six times, which means an individual measurement, you know, shouldn't put too much, you know, uh, be, be too concerned about it, but over time it's very accurate. So, so that maybe that answers your question a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much for the uh, clarification. And I, I feel like measuring the variability instead of the absolute heart rate is definitely a very clever way to sort of gauge the, uh, I guess, the changing balance between the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. I guess uh, one last follow-up question that I have is that currently does the app target just the uh, people with normal heart condition or does it also take into account with, you know, people that might have congenital heart disease or, you know, related cardiovascular pathology? Because sometimes they do have inherently different, you know, heart rate variation even per se, because that's like the one major component that you rely heavily on, right? So, you know, sometimes people might have tachycardia just because uh, there's a problem in like in the uh, physiology of their heart instead of, you know, they're having a panic episode or something like that. So we're just wondering if you, if you guys have thought about or like accounted for that, or, you know, currently it's just focusing on people with normal heart condition. It's a, it's an excellent question. What we've done is we've set up the, um, the measurement to, to be relatively high threshold such that we don't collect and use the data and send it to the neural network unless we know that it's of good quality. And that's why if, if you use the product, you'll see like it might, might drop off or something because we weren't confident in the signal we were obtaining. And so we want to restart the, the, the measurement. Um, and what that allows us to do is then, you know, it, just not do measurements when we don't think we're going to have a good chance of, 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 of getting an accurate uh, reading. We've done experiments with all kinds of different people, all kinds of different skin tones and different ages, et cetera, and discovered that as long as we can get a measurement, the accuracy of the stress prediction is the same. So there's no bias in terms of facial features that we can identify. Um, however, what we have not done is, is look to see if the predictions are as accurate for people that do have heart conditions or severe stress conditions, because PTSD, for example, 
may influence how the autonomic nervous system actually interacts with the heart. So, so there are, there is, there, there is, you know, potentially some medical conditions out there where the neural network breaks down. Um, and that, that's the, that's the greatest, one of the greatest concerns for us, but at the moment, um, we don't, we don't really know the, the full extent of the limitations there. And, and, and that's an area that that's under current investigation. I see. Yeah, thank you. And uh, I guess looking forward to, you know, having more discoveries from the uh, from the next step investigations. You went into um, the neural network a little bit and we're curious about the development of it. Um, looking at something like stress, which is inherently kind of varies a lot from person to person. Do you think you can give us some more details about, you know, the development of this neural network and how it takes into account um, all the different factors that contribute to stress? Well, it doesn't take into account all the different factors that contribute to stress. The, the neural network um, was trained with um, data from a, a few few thousand people. So first neural network was trained at with a little over 3,000 people and a little over 10,000 different self-assessments of stress combined with the 30-second selfie video. And all the neural network's information, everything is heart rate and then heart rate variability in two you know, frequency spectrums, high and low, right? So what power, is it, you know, and then gets those three data points and it says, okay, these three data points are associated with this level of stress. And these three data points are associated with this level of stress. And it gets that 10,000 times. And then we test it on, you know, unseen data. So then we just give it the, the those three data points and we say, tell us what stress you think it is. And then we see how well that matches with, with, the, you know, the, and this is on unseen data and we've even done it on unseen people. So we can train the neural network on a subset of the, of the data uh, and then get it to do measurements on data that come from an entirely different group of people. And the people come from over a hundred countries around the world. And so it's very, very diverse. And that's all the neural network is, is, is doing. Everything is based upon those three data points. But there are other things that are involved in stress. This is just one of the most important ones, me medically speaking. Yeah, for sure. Is that the reason why, like, you know, in part of your two-pronged stress test, in one of the first steps is that you ask people to do a self-assessment. So, you know, if people have inherently higher threshold of stress, if they're like 95% stress, but then they think they're normal. So perhaps that would be like a benchmark for like, you know, the inherent variability of how people perceive those stress level within themselves. That That, that is something that we... Um, flags. We've developed a, a like a chronic stress test itself as an independent uh, product, which is in, in, in the pipeline. And um, one, one of the elements of the decision tree that we provide the healthcare professionals that, that interpret the data from these tests and then provide recommendations to patients is how well does the self-assessment of stress match with what the computer says? And if there's a big difference, then that's something to flag. So, and, you know, or something, something to flag and look into, right? It could be that this person is totally off, but it could be that, you know, maybe they have a heart condition or they, they, they have, you know, a, a particular stress condition, which, which makes this um, neural network just inappropriate for measuring stress for them. And that's something that you can dive into on a personal basis when you have a healthcare professional, you know, reviewing the data.
Yeah, for sure. And uh, I guess thank you so much for giving us such a detailed like nuts and bolts lecture on like how all of these components and neural network work. So I guess just to take a step back and like looking at a uh, bigger picture. So uh, what do you foresee for the digital therapeutic and meditation space in the next 10 years? And um, how do you think mobile will contribute to it? Well, um, like I said, uh, OmniTX isn't just a meditation app. Um, and so we're definitely going to move be beyond it. Um, in terms of meditation, I think, you know, things are still going to, um, continue largely, um, how they are for the moment. But of course we have the hope that, you know, the emphasis starts to become on things that are shown clinical validation and, and can do measurement and generate data and, 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 and really are evidenced and scientifically based, um, and so we kind of think of this product as being in its own class, you know, compared to other meditation apps out there. Um, but what we've done so far has not been easy. I mean, instead of spending millions of dollars to advertise the product and get, get downloads and optimize, you know, gamification and, and, and engagement and hooks and stuff like that, we've spent millions of dollars on these clinical trials. Um, and that's a fundamental difference in the execution strategy of us versus some other other products. It's um, definitely taking like the more clinical approach, right? Which, you know, inherently doesn't need as much uh, money spent into advertising if the purpose of it is to kind of like steer away from, you know, the simple meditation app that you see on the app store. Yeah, that, that's absolutely, that's absolutely right, right? There's, there's a fundamental difference in the execution strategy. So there's, there's, you know, even if, even if we assume that some of the other products on the market have the same type of interest in tackling the mental health crisis, there's really no good data to show that many of them do actually have a good impact, right? So the strategy for most has been, you know, let's 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 demonstrate so-called product market fit, and then once we have traction and some money coming in the door, then we'll check to see if the product actually benefits anybody and move into this space. Um, but most companies never get to the second step. That's kind of you know, why we, we figure, okay, we start with the clinical validation and then we do everything else afterwards. Um, and that's, that's, you know, so I, we think that that typical approach, which is common has a fatal flaw. Um, and that's that the, you know, what they, you do to develop that product market fit might actually impair you from delivering something, which is, which is effective. Right. So just because you have a product, which is commercially successful, doesn't mean that that product is good for people. Right. I mean, that's pretty obvious. Right. So, um, so the problem is that, you know, let's say you do take that approach and then you run a clinical trial and you fail like Headspace did. Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to like totally revamp the product and then, you know, like let the clinical trials run? No, I mean, you're stuck, right. You have to, now you have to like continue to generate revenue. And, and so you can't move away from that. And there's a certain mental model that people expect when they go to the Headspace app, right? You can't just completely change everything up because then you're going to lose a lot of your commercial success as well. Well, yeah. And, you know, it could be that the reason why it's popular, you know, gets in the way of its effectiveness. I mean, not necessarily, but it could be that way. And then, and then what are you going to do, right? So um, we don't think that, you know, meaningful impact should be an afterthought. And we don't think that engagement is the best measure of meaningful um, uh, impact, right? That's why we have these objective measures. That's like, you know, I had, I had my whole career in science as an academic and I, I, I left that, but I only left that after we had shown that we could be placebo, right? After I knew that we had the capacity to be measuring as well, 
how people were doing in real time so we can continually ensure that that we're, we're benefiting people um, and we're in, in in sort of phase phase three in a way of our product development phase one was setting the infrastructure uh, you know phase two is 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 putting in the features and doing the clinical validation and now phase three is you know let's 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 simplify the product for the average user we get raving reviews and awesome you know statistics and metrics inside of clinical trials because that's how we design the product but for the average user it's still very confusing i think and hard to navigate uh, and so that's the challenge that we're, we're doing now but we can now do this and simultaneously measure how the ux changes affect the efficacy of the product on people and then if we introduce something which increases the usability but decreases efficacy well then we just get rid of it right we can never compromise the the the, the efficacy of the product i mean that is you know that that's fundamental and we, we actually have the data to allow us to do that yeah and that's that's a pretty good note to end on i think um you answered all of our questions we're super glad to have you on the podcast today so thank you so much for you know joining us Thank you so much for the response, Dr. Stab. And that nicely wraps up all of our questions for the day. I hope all of our listeners enjoyed the talk and got a few takeaways from this episode. Thank you again for joining us today, Dr. Stab, and thanks everyone for tuning in. Mm -hmm.